if you have your Bibles, we are, I hope you do, even as uh, I love Larry exhorting us on Thursday night, get that Bible in front of you, get it in front of you, this is the word, this is not the word, right, it is this word that we need, it's this word that is, actually revives the soul and gives, uh, makes wise the simple, and so... We want to give our attention to the Word, have it before us as we jump into our time uh, together. So, Matthew chapter 11 is where we're at this morning. Matthew chapter 11, a familiar passage, but very appropriate for kind of where we're at as a church considering the topic of busyness. James, can you grab the whiteboard? Um, a few book recommendations, once again, uh, as we go through this series. First, um, a lot of the resource that I'm using comes from John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. So it's a fantastic, fantastic book. And so um, if, if you want to do some reading on busyness, I'd highly recommend it. You'll see a lot of the stuff that I'm using is actually from that book. This morning, we're also going to be um, touching on this particular book. If you don't have this book, we have copies in the back for free. We want to stick it in your hand. It's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Anything you can find by Dane Ortland, get it. All right? Solid gospel teach this his writing will enrich your soul uh I'll, I'll be straight with you this is this is just kind of practical it's like yeah that's nice you know it's helpful this will enrich your soul it'll just be like oh you'll, you'll see jesus in his beauty right that's that's the kind of books that i'm drawn to i like the practical stuff when when we need practical stuff but man i want my heart aflame for jesus and that's what dane orton will oftentimes do with his writing. Uh, just before then reading the text, uh, I want to address uh, the end of the service last week, just real briefly, and I actually just want to read something that I, that I wrote here. Uh, last week, perhaps, um, some of you may have been taken back by how we ended uh, the service. Um, in Scripture, God does give us particular ways uh, to privately address sin within the church. Um, but when there are trends of duplicity, and duplicity is being two-faced, coming to church one way, engaging in church life one way, and then yet doing, having a different life when you're apart out of the church. That's duplicity. It's two-faced. If you've watched Batman, right? One of the villains, right? And so that's the idea. Living one way when you're here at church, you're able to talk scripture, hey, how you doing, rub shoulders like nothing's wrong, and yet on the backside of your life, you're involved in sins that you should not be involved with. And to add to that, these trends of duplicity where individuals within the church conspire to conceal the evils. It leaves us then as pastors to go public. We must warn and exhort the flock. I want all of us as sheep to have a heightened awareness of these things 
and to realize that this kind of living is unacceptable for followers of Jesus. Absolutely unacceptable. From concealing sexual sins with one another, to drug use with one another, to drunkenness with one another, to gossip with one another. It is unacceptable in the household of God. God can't be pleased to dwell among his people like that. And any kind of discipleship, and by the way, I'm just, I'm just going to be straight. This has been the trend in 10 years of ministry here. The enemy loves to work. He loves to play off of the church itself. He loves to play off those who think they can do the two-faced thing and then conceal it with those who kind of agree. Yeah, we can have our thing on the side. What that does is it does not please the Lord, and it undermines any kind of discipleship within the church. You can't build on that, right? You can't build on duplicity. God won't bless it. God's not in it. In fact, as pastorally, I don't want him to build. And by the way, that's some of the reason, I'm getting a little, some of the reasons why I am fine if God would just end this church. He doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes. We are privileged to be a part of his purposes. So if there's duplicity, if there's behind-the-scenes sin going on, this idea of selective transparency, I'll be somewhat transparent here to the point where you think you can trust me being a Christian, yet while you're doing things on the back end that's so displeasing and counterintuitive to everything that Christianity is about, then may God crush this church. Don't let it continue. I don't want to be here on the corner of Walker and Benner if we can't shine genuinely for the sake of Jesus. All we are is a misrepresentation of Jesus if that's the way we are living as Christians. That's anti-Christ. You go to 1 John. That's what John is taught. That is the antichrist. And we just can't tolerate it. So church, church online, watching, we all need to be exhorted. We all need to be warned. Any of this kind of stuff going on that you get drift of, it needs to be brought into the light. None of this sitting on it for years at a time, months at a time. And then by the time it actually comes to the surface, it's so outdated, you think, oh, no, it's, it's bygone. It's no big deal. Absolutely, it's a big deal. And pastorally, we must deal with it. So, how's that? Everybody kind of get that? We good? All right. If there are things going on that need to be brought into the light, it is your responsibility to bring it into the light. Bring it into the light. Come talk to James and I so we can deal with this. We want to be a shining light for Jesus, not some misrepresentation of Christ. Okay, Matthew 11. We're turning the corner now to center ourselves on the topic of busyness. So Matthew chapter 11. Again, it's, this is a familiar text. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. As you come to verse 28, remember context is king. If you want to understand a particular passage, you want to understand the surrounding passages. Jesus has just rebuked particular cities. Kind of like 
what I'm trying to do, all right? He's just had a very hard moment with people, okay? He's rebuked particular cities because they have not received him. And then verse 25, Jesus is having this moment with the Father. He's bringing praise to his Father, saying, Lord, I'm so thankful that you've hid truth from those who think they're wise and understanding, but have now revealed them to little children. For such was your gracious will. And then verse 28, there is an invitation. Verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest. Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Over the last few weeks, right, we've been addressing this topic of busyness, and Dallas Willard, as the slide reminds you of, has stated this. Dallas Willard, philosopher, theologian, great, great guy, uh, love his writing. He, he states this, hurry, that is busy hurry, is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must, church, we must, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Now, we know that on some level, as we talked about in the past few weeks, busyness and even a sense of hurriedness is a necessary, it's going to be a necessary part of life. Like, you know, the water breaks, you better take her to the hospital, right? There better be a sense of urgency, like go, 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 a hurriedness, like God get her there now at all costs, right? There's, there's going to be moments and times where busyness, even hurriedness, is absolutely necessary. But most of our lives are lived in a busyness that is altogether unhealthy. Uh, it's a busyness, as we talked about, that is oftentimes this downward spiral of, uh, it's, it's a busyness motivated by anxiety. It's that low-grade kind of edge of anxiety. You're getting pushed to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, by an- anxiousness. It's fear that's driving you in some sense, fear that the, that the things that need to get done aren't going to get done. And oftentimes, the, the wonderful twin of anxiety is fatigue. You know, it's that weariness. I'm tired. I just have nothing left in the tank. And so we run our busy lives fueled by anxiety, which often then produces the fruit of fatigue. And then, of course, we have to manage, cope with that fatigue. And we oftentimes then, oh man, we just give ourselves to some pretty deep kind of escapes, whether that's substance or whether that's just endless entertainment to kind of unwind the mind. And so we run our life like this and finally crash with maybe a few drinks, you know, and a few episodes of this or that or a few pills of whatever by the end of the night just to fall asleep. And then you're jumping up the next morning and trying to do it all over again. Eventually, of course, it learned it, it leads to burnout. You crash. Emotionally, mentally, spiritually, you crash. It's what uh, we've 
seen referred to as pathological busyness. It's that illness, that sickness, that cycle that we get stuck in. Um, and it's an illness of hurry that has become such an epidemic in our day that even psychologists now have labeled this trend as hurried sickness. Hurried sickness, right? Now, to add to this trend of life, we also have these cultural factors that are at play within our, within our world. The, the first cultural factor is this value of busyness. We highly value busyness. Uh, as I mentioned before, in, in decades past, if, if you would look at the major marketing schemes, powerful people were shown as like playing tennis, sipping wine, sailing their boats, doing leisure stuff, right? That's what power was imaged as. Today, it's the powerful people are in the boardroom, you know, doing work. Right? They're, they're in the Google collaborative space, you know, where they got the cool ping pong and cornhole, you know, off to the side and the beers on tap and then just tons of work. Like, life is work and life is fun and you just mesh all that together and that's true significance. That's power. That's what you should aspire to be. And so what culture does is it kind of puts this, this image before us that to be significant is to be busy. Remember, not too long ago, um, maybe some of you would remember this, the blue law, right? Sundays, we're, we're shutting things down. Like Chick-fil-A uh, was, was not the exception, it was the rule. Like life is shutting down because we value the Sabbath. We value rest. Now life is flipped on its head today where Sundays are not this. Sundays are busy, busy, busy. We got to go do all the errands that we didn't get done throughout the week, right? So our culture is changing. It's valuing this, this busyness. You ask someone how they're doing. What's the typical response? Busy. I'm doing okay. I'm just really busy. And part of that is like we feel like we need to say that because if I wasn't busy, well, then I'm not being significant. Right? I'm not living a worthy life in some sense. Um, and even in our vocabulary, this is kind of a smaller issue, but um, if you'd recognize, you know, if, if someone has a mental disability, we would kind of off on the fly say that they are what? S slow. Right? So even when it comes to how we value and view people, the fast and slow becomes something where if you're fast and you can compute things and move quickly. Well, then you're a value. If not, well, then you're slow. So it, culturally, there's this strong value on, on, on busyness. Of busy, right? Uh, secondly, then, uh, we live in a culture that has advanced technology, right? So John Comer, from his book, writes, he writes this. In the 1960s, futurists all over the world from the sci-fi writer to the political theorist, thought that by now we'd all be working way fewer hours. He says one famous Senate subcommittee in 1967 was told that by 1985, about 20 years later, the average American would work only 22 hours a week <laughs> for 27 weeks of a year. Everybody thought the main problem in our day would be too much leisure. 
But today, you know, we got all that advanced technology, right? We got the dishwashers, we got the K-cups, we got the air fryers, we got the laundry machines, we got all the digital stuff that we absolutely need to make things go quickly. So I can need something, you know, tomorrow and have it arrive at my doorstep with just the click of a button. Everything can be fast, and yet we're still sitting back saying, where'd the time go? So we have this technological factor that we're being influenced uh, by as well. And then, and then, oh my, this is just, this is the massive influence on our day, is the addictive digital media. The average iPhone user touches his phone 2,617 times a day. 2,617 times, the first time I read that, I was like, wait, what, what? And all of that is intentional. By the way, you know, digital media is intended to be invasive. It's intended to invade our space, our time, our attention. So Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, he says, the consumer is the product. You catch that? In other words, your time and your attention is what they're after. Um, economists call this the attention economy, right? They're they're trying to work for your time and your attention. How much attention can we grab from people? And so our screens become dopamine dispensers, right? From one flick to the next, it's catching you, it's catching you, pulling you in, and before you know it, you've been sitting there for perhaps hours on end, accomplishing nothing. So even, even Netflix has said that they are not fearful of other competitors, other streaming platforms, but they are more fearful of competing with their customers' sleep. In other words, they're trying to keep you awake. <laughs> they're trying to keep you with your eyes on a screen, with your head and attention engaged into something, rather than sleeping. And now, now today, you know, we've, we've had the technological advances. iPhone came out, what, 2007, and all the advancements now have come from there, and all these streaming platforms, and all this digital information now is before us. And we finally now have seen some of the bigwigs of these more social media companies resign, right? Because they believe these platforms have, been, have become unethically invasive. That is, so much of digital media is intended to be addictive, again, to grab your attention and to keep it such that some of these board members have now resigned saying this is unethical. As one person says, digital media is a digital carnivore. It's seeking specifically to feast on our time and our attention. And our, our poor kids, you know, we slip phones into their hands, put a screen before them, even even for, even for us, a little infant, he's, he's a year old. And it's like, hey, put a screen in. He's just like glued, you know, done. I mean, we, we got a little space that we can get our stuff done, you know, now that he's his attention. One, one statistic says this, that the average kid will play 10,000 hours of video games before they are 21. And, and that's just average. And 10,000 hours, Malcolm Gladwell, I don't know if this is interesting to you, 10,000 hours is what it's required to become an expert in any professional field. You catch that? Like, they, they could become a professional violinist, you know, playing in some orchestra. 
Right? They could become an archaeologist, a, phys a physicist, with 10 hours of study and attention given to more important things. All to say, you know, I, I could put, you know, we got, you know, digital media and then et cetera, because there's more cultural influences going on in our world that are uh, forcing, influencing this busy dynamic in our lives than, than we have time to even cover this morning. So these factors then, these cultural factors, the way in which life now is spinning out in this busy spiral, these, these factors make spiritual depth an impossibility. Hurry, remember, we've, we talked about this, hurry and love are incompatible. You can't truly love in a hurry. Why? Because love demands time, and so that's why we talked about God is the three-mile-an-hour God. It's that walking speed of three miles an hour. God walks because God is love. God is slow because God is love. You can't speed up love. Love takes time. And so in the hurried life, in the non-love life, we become, like one says, we are just skimming through life rather than truly living it. We are becoming shallow, shriveled people. One says, our spiritual lives become stillborn in the womb. It's a powerful image. It says, hurry is a form of violence to the soul. It kills us before we can even come into some sort of life, right? Even depth of life as it relates to our relationship to the Lord. Uh, if we could say it this way, we were a puddle of depth in Christ rather than an ocean depth in Christ. And, and the weird thing of all this, sad thing, is that that becomes just the Christian norm. Th this is just like accepted. We're not going to push back on that. This is just life as we know it, and so we live it. Yes, we're shallow people. Yes, we don't really know much of Jesus, but, 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 but that's just the norm, and so we live it as the norm, um, and that kills us when it comes to spiritual depth. Now, uh, the question then that I briefly want to consider with you this morning, how do we begin undoing this? How do we begin undoing the busyness of, of life? And... By the way, the answer to that is not more time. Remember with Joshua, like Jesus, or God, you know, he, he holds the sun in its place and gives more time for the war to be won kind of a thing. Uh, we would love that to happen within our own lives for the war to be won. I just need a few more hours, Lord. And time does not do it. What would we do with more time? We would waste it. We're just going to fill it with more stuff, right? More meaningless stuff. And so the issue of answering this question of how do we undo this busyness, it gets deeper at our, there's something further down in us that needs to be addressed. And yes, then it will have influences on how we're actually living out our life, our priorities, our in, the influences in our life, and how we appropriate them and rightly prioritize them. So but I want to get more to the heart of the matter before we get to the practicals beyond that, which we'll consider in the next couple of weeks. So answering this question, how do we begin undoing this busyness? First and foremost, as the text says, by coming to Jesus. Look at verse 28. It says, come, 
It's right there. There's like no grand explanation to it. Jesus just says, come to me, right? This is the invitation that Jesus kind of speaks into our hurried, anxious, weary lives. He says, come to me. It's an invitation to his table. It's an invitation to the feet of Jesus himself like Mary did. Like Mary came right to the feet of Jesus while Martha busied herself. He's inviting us to himself. This is our God. Just like stop there for a moment and just ah, take it in. God is actually saying, come here, child. Like, I want time with you. I want to connect eyes with you. I want intimacy with you. I want fellowship with you. Come to me, Jesus says. And notice then who particularly he is inviting. He's inviting all who labor and are what? Heavy laden. Does the hurried life here qualify for this invitation? <laughs> yeah. That's like that, that's who Jesus is speaking to. The, 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 the broke down, busy people that we are. Jesus is saying, Come to me, all who are la who are laboring and are heavy laden. It's the anxious, it's the weary, it's the burden and busy life that he, that he sees. He sees you. Is that good news? Busy body, right? He sees you. He has set a place for you. He's sending an invitation out to you. He's declaring to you, come, a weary one, come, come to me. But notice the context. This is important to consider. Remember, context is king, right? Many will qualify for the invitation. Few will apprehend it. Many will qualify for the invitation, but few will apprehend it. There is an actual way that we must come to Jesus. That's why in the previous verses, Jesus, verse 21, is saying, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. You have seen the mighty works of God, and still you don't receive me. Like God's shown himself off. Here I am, come to me. They've said, well, that was fun to watch. And they continue to go through their busy life, doing their own thing. Jesus rebukes them. But then, again, in verse 25, Jesus turns to his father, starts worshiping the father, and says, I thank you, Father that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. In other words, the invitation of coming to Jesus demands a childlike response. Do you catch it? That you can't come to Jesus, in other words, still holding on to your wisdom, your will, your ways. You can't come to Jesus, all right, holding on to your own wisdom, your will, your ways. Your wisdom, your will, your ways, like a child must be checked at the door. I'm putting all that to the side because I know I am a limited, unable person. I know in my own wisdom I don't have it to shoulder all of life. Even Isaiah chapter 40 will say those in their prime will be crushed under the weight of life. And then you should have, like, football figure, kind of, like, strong, mighty, like, hey, these, these guys seemingly got it together. Even they will be crushed under the weight of life. 
And so Jesus is saying, for those who come to me, they must check their will, their wisdom, their ways at the door and come to me in need. Come to me like a child saying, I don't have what it takes to get through this life. Jesus, it must be you. To come to Jesus demands that we surrender our will, our wisdom, our way to him. But not only that, notice verse 27. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, the only way we can respond to the invitation is by the supernatural revelation of Christ. Just like Jesus will ask Peter, I think it's in Matthew chapter 16, just a few more uh, pages down the line. He says, he says to Peter, who do you say that I am, Peter? And, and Peter responds, you are the Christ. And Jesus will say, well, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't come to this conclusion because in your own reason you figured it out. You came to this conclusion because my father revealed it to you. There was a supernatural revealing. God invaded your heart and your life and gave you eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. You see? So the only way we're going to rightly respond to the invitation to apprehend what many will fail to apprehend is to first say, become childlike. God, I don't have it. I don't have it within me to undo this busy, crazy, broken down life. I don't have it within me. That's what he wants from me. You qualify for the invitation if that's you. But it also demands that you see, you see by way of supernatural revelation that Jesus is the treasure. If I don't have Jesus, what do I have? It's like the, the, the apostles will, will say when Jesus challenges them. They, they respond, where else shall we go? You have the words of life. They become to see like you're going to get plenty of talk. Plenty of talk going on. Plenty of promises that the world will give you. This is what you need. Oh, this is what you need. Or this is what you need. You'll be marketed out, so to speak. Plenty of marketing. Here's the promise. Here's the thing. Here's the silver bullet of life. This is what will really get you what you need. It must be Jesus. It must be that your eyes would be open to him. You, if I can go here, I want to be careful. But I, I want to step into this space. You must see Jesus not as a mere therapist who makes your life better, but as a Lord and Savior who makes your life new. He doesn't just bring relief to your life. He brings redemption to your life. God must reveal that Jesus is far more than relief. He's just not a token for a better life. He is redemption. And because he's redemption, because he's the one who gives brand new life, he is rest. He's rest. This is what Jesus promised. He promised redemption. He says, come to me and I will give you Rest, rest through redemption, through making your life new, through taking this, putting it on its head, making you completely a new creation in Christ. 
We have to die to some of these dynamics, not just have some extra new kind of psychologist information so that I could better understand myself and find in myself the answer to the broken down mess that I'm living in. I need Jesus to come and do some overhauling work, not just give me a few little cute uh, things to just make my life a little better. It's not about relief. It's about redemption. And in redemption, there is rest. Maybe to say it another way before we move on to the final point. Your life is not in need of mere readjustments. We'll, we'll get to some of the readjustments when we talk about the external things. We're trying to go after that heart, the deeper things. Our hurried lives, and we have to say it this way, evidence our idolatrous hearts. Catch it? Our hurried lives evidence our idolatrous hearts. A hurried life is an idolatrous life. Our actions reveal our beliefs. What you do, the fruit of your life, represents the belief of your life. Does that make sense? So, if life is filled with anxiety and fatigue and then vegging out on all the entertainment that the world provides us to find some sort of rest, that's saying something about what you believe Jesus to be for you. See it? Because here, here, here's, the, here's the thing. Oftentimes we believe this lie. If I'm busy, then I'm valuable. If I'm busy in achieving things, well, then I'm significant. And so we think that this is going to give us some sort of significance. And, and of course, you know, in this life, I gotta find, I gotta figure out heaven on earth. So I gotta figure out rest. And so I'm gonna run to technology to give me ease. I'm gonna run then to digital media to find my escapes. I'm gonna run to the things of the world rather than running to who? Jesus. And that's what I mean. The hurried life is an idolatrous life. The one who should be giving all of this to you is Jesus, not the world. Right? You shouldn't be living by the values of the world. You shouldn't be leaving the lie that significance comes through what you do. It comes through what Christ has done. Right? Rest shouldn't fundamentally come through technology and digital media and entertainment. There's a deep rest that our hearts are longing for that we all know that endless seasons of Netflix cannot satisfy. Uh, one of the interesting dynamics, and this is a side, uh, my wife and kids watched Anne with an E. I don't know, you know, it's like, okay, the, the girls want to watch this, sure. Uh, and, but then you get into it. It's like, oh, this is pretty, this is pretty good. And then, and then we, we get to season three, right? So you, you like, I wouldn't even want to like add up all the time that we've wasted on this thing. But we get to season three and, and we're like on the final episode and Jody or Trinity, you know, they're on the phone and, oh, they're not making a season four. It's done, right? And we're on like the final episode and we all begin to grieve. <laughs> we're grieving, literally, like, 
We've gone through this whole story, and now we've got to see what happens, and we're not going to be able to see what happens. And this, this, this thing that we've been feeding on, we've been finding rest from, is coming to this grievous end. What the heck are we going to do with our time? What the heck are we going to do in terms of finding rest? We need to end with an E. And we don't. We need Jesus. I'm not saying entertainment is bad. It's going to have its place, right? But that's not what we're focusing on first and foremost. We're focusing on what's going on on the level of our hearts. Right? If I'm feeding off this, if that's my main source of rest, I've so failed. I've idolized entertainment. I've idolized substance. I've idolized the things that I think will give me the rest that I need. Jesus says, come to me. Right? All you weary laden, I will give you rest. Many, once again, will qualify for the invitation of coming to Jesus, but only a few will apprehend it. Only a few. Only those, if I could say it this way, who turn from this chaos of life and trust in Jesus with a childlike faith. Right? Who come to see him as the treasure. Who come to see him as life itself. I must have Jesus, or as I've said before, or I die. We all know life apart from Jesus, most of us, right? I remember as a college student, this, this crazy, empty, anxious, gnawing away of the soul. It's just so dissonant and noisy and, and there's no peace whatsoever. It's death. It's walking death, right? But when we finally apprehend Jesus, when we come to him as the one who is life, oh, the peace that abides in the soul, the rest that comes to the soul is incredible. Now, not only must we come to Jesus, we also undo this busy life by following after Jesus. Um, verses 29 through 30. Jesus' invitation just doesn't stop at an invitation, right? We, we unbusy our lives by coming to Jesus, but second, by following after Jesus. So he states, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And you have to sit back and say, mm, What is it, a yoke? Like, what, what are we doing? Are we looking at eggs? What are we, you know, what's happening here? What is a yoke? A yoke is an instrument of labor. But I thought we were trying to unbusy our lives, right? The yoke is an instrument of labor. Jesus is saying, yes, come to me, but then take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take on an instrument of labor. This yoke was the heavy crossbar, right, laid across the backs of oxen so they can keep in sync as they would pull the plow along and till up the ground. So what Jesus is proposing is not a workless, labor-free life. That's not at all. Jesus isn't just, just kind of dishing out to you the American dream that you've always wanted. That's not his vision for you. That dream has to die. Kill that dream, any hopes and dreams of you know, going to the shore, getting the shore house, all that kind of stuff. God might have that in the cards for you, but that is not where it begins. You better be getting that dream from him and not just from the stuff that you've been watching late at night. 
of I just, if I just kill myself, working harder and harder, busying myself, and then I'll finally get the rest that I've always wanted. That dream's got to die if it's not being motivated and given to you by Jesus himself. It's got to die. You will be a discontented person. You'll get down to the shore, finally have your stuff, and you'll still be hollow on the inside. Die to those dreams, right? He's saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So Jesus is proposing, he's not proposing this workless, labor-free life. Jesus isn't even offering an easy life. He's offering an easy yoke. Catch it? Not an easy life, but an easy yoke. So just like James had addressed last week, right? What, what, what are you busying your life with, actually? It's a yoke, an instrument of work, and so the Christian life, one of following after Jesus, will be work. But it's a new kind of preoccupation for us. Kind of erases all the busyness and gives us a new template for which to work from. It's a new kind of preoccupation. But notice, what's the primary work that Jesus points out? Well, what's, what's the primary aim? Take my yoke upon you and do what? Learn. Learn. To learn of Jesus, that's your job. <laughs> that's what it's going to look like to follow after him. I want to seek him out. I want to find him. I want to be that, that kind of like 49er, so to speak, going after the gold. I want to search for him, find him, see him to be valuable and beautiful and glorious. I want to do everything I can to search him out, to learn from him. Our primary activity is to learn Jesus. And, and in fact, in Jesus' day, the, the teachings of rabbis, as Jesus is referred to, Jesus is referred to as a rabbi. He was a teacher. But the teaching of rabbis was referred to as a yoke. Right? It was rules, it was you know, curriculum that they were to learn and apply themselves to. But Jesus' yoke wasn't about necessarily knowing a curriculum or a bunch of information. It was about knowing a person. It was about knowing Jesus. Learn of me. And who is he? Well, he gives us a hint. I am gentle and what? Lowly in heart. Just think about it for a moment. The heart is the core of an individual, right? And Jesus is saying that when we give our primary time and activity to learn of him, we will find that he is gentle and lowly. Not because gentleness and lowliness is a characteristic of him, but it's, it's the characteristic of him. You, you, you will see the core of him, the heart of him, will be gentleness and lowliness. Or we could use other words to describe gentle and lowly as being kind and accessible. <laughs> In this busy, crazy time where your mind's just going all over the place, and I got my to-do list and it never ends and I can never finish it in a given day. Ah! Don't you need an accessible savior? <laughs> One who's just there in the craziness. One who's there in the hurried busyness. Jesus is like, if you learn of me, if you give yourself to pursuing me, you will come to encounter and experiencing me in two primary ways that I am very kind. And that I'm very accessible. 
Isn't that good news? What a savior. Like, again, these are not just some of his characteristics. They are like the characteristics. You will certainly experience him as being gentle and lowly. This is why then Jesus can say in verse 30, my yoke, the labor that I require of you to come and learn of me, my yoke is going to be easy. And my burden is going to be light. Dane Ortland writes it this way, and it's like when he says it better than I could say it, then I'm just going to quote him. Uh, he says it this way. He says, Jesus' yoke is kind. I think it's there on the screen. Jesus' yoke is kind and his burden is light. That is, his yoke is a non-yoke <laughs> and his burden is a non-burden. He says, what helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. Isn't that good? We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and his supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of us sweeping into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. It's what gets him out of the bed in the morning, right? That, that is his heart impulse towards us. He's not just like, diving into moments of hardship. He's living there with, he's yoked to us, right? That's what the cross achieved for us. Do you understand? You were separated in your sin, but because of what he's done, now we can live life together. His spirit now is with us, in us, around us, helping us through life, shouldering the pressures and burdens of life, showing us the way then of learning in greater measure this Jesus who is gentle and lowly. And then this is all why Jesus can say, and you will find rest for your souls. When he says, this is, this is the way to begin to unbusy your life, right? This is the way following after me, setting your heart's affection to learn of me, grow in me, and you will find that my yoke, this learning process, this path is going to be one of ease and lightness. It'll be good because I'm in it and I'm with you. But then the promise stands upon all of that. You will find rest for your souls. The soul is literally the word psyche in Greek, psukos. It's the word that you, we use today for psychology. Interesting. This promise of rest is to be experienced, if you will, at the intersection of our mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. It's rest that Jesus gives to us within. It's rest in the depths of our being where we need it the most. So let me ask you, you know, where we began talking through describing this busyness, what can ultimately undo this emotional epidemic that psychologists call hurried sickness? What can ultimately undo it? 
Jesus, 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 Jesus promises rest for our souls. Now let me just push again, and I want to be careful. Today, therapists' schedules and offices are jam-packed. And the churches are empty. The Bible studies empty. The prayer meetings are empty. What I am not saying is to drop your therapist. But I'm saying if Jesus isn't getting the priority of your life, you will never find rest. If it's not Jesus ever and always, you won't find the rest. He is the answer to all of that. If therapists aren't preaching Jesus, then they're maybe giving you some life skills to kind of cope with the craziness, but they can't give you the solution to your unrest. Because it's only found in Jesus. You have to understand that your very composition, who you were made for, is Jesus. You're going to be off equilibrium. You're going to be all shattered within if it's not for Jesus. In fact, Jesus will define his very ministry of bringing healing to the brokenhearted. The idea you take a pane of this glass and you shatter it. All these shards of glass goes everywhere. That's the picture of what we're living in a busy life. Our life is fractured apart in all kinds of different ways hurting one another, oppressing one another, while giving ourselves to all the values of, of the world and then just burning ourselves out in life. We're shattered in a thousand pieces. Jesus says, I've come, that's the brokenhearted picture. I've come to take that pane of glass, that broken heart, and I'm the one who can take the pieces and begin to put it together in a way in which glorifies me. You will find in that process of seeing everything put back together that he is gentle and accessible. You will find rest for your souls. He's the answer. It must be Jesus. And here's another plug. A Sunday here and there ain't enough. All 52 Sundays of the year ain't enough. We will need all the stuff in between one Sunday to the next Sunday. I need all the stuff that will get my gaze on Jesus. This is the learning process. This is the yoke. Oh, it's been a busy day, and I just can't get out to do anything else, and I just want to sit here and watch more seasons of Anne with an E. <laughs> and Anne with an E cannot give you rest for your soul. That season will end, and it will disappoint. Jesus will not end, and he doesn't disappoint. He's always there ready to become for us rest for our souls. But this is the work. You get it? This is the work that has to happen. This is the yoke that we have to put on. It is work. It's not an easy life. It's an easy yoke. And so this is the work that we have to do to learn of Jesus and grow in Jesus, and the result will be rest for our souls. So, we unbusy our lives by first coming to Jesus, receiving his invitation childlike 
but seeing in him the treasure that he is, the all that he is. And secondly, we must follow after Jesus. We unburden our lives, we unbusy our lives by following after him, learning of him, disciplining ourselves to that hot pursuit of him so that we might find in him rest for our souls. Now, I just want to end with a quote. It was like, uh, either one of the quotes, and then Larry and I were talking even Thursday night, it's like, you, you come to the table with the text, and it's like, oh, man, and you have to cut out so much stuff. And this was one that I was like, yep, this has got to go, but I was just like, nah, I'm going to throw it in at the end. Uh, so A.W. Tozer, he, he actually, he uses the Apostle Paul as an example of one who follows after Jesus, who learns of Jesus, who, who gives labor to running hard after Jesus. And he compares the Apostle Paul's life to our very own. He says, ten thousands of believers who pride themselves on their understanding of Romans and Ephesians cannot conceal the sharp spiritual contradiction that exists between their hearts and the heart of the Apostle Paul. The difference may be stated this way. Paul was a seeker and a finder and a seeker still. They find, they seek, and they find, and they what? Seek no more. Seek no more. After accepting Christ, after gaining the invitation, they tend to substitute logic for life and doctrine for experience. For them, the truth becomes a veil to hide the face of God. For Paul, it was a door into his very presence. Paul's spirit was that of the loving explorer. He was a prospector among the hills of God, searching for the gold of personal spiritual acquaintance. Be a gold seeker, right? Enter into the hills of God and go hard after Jesus. Labor to find him. Get your pick out. Get your, your, your shovel out and start digging, right? Get some blood, sweat, and tears into it. That's, it's what it's going to cost. I, I, uh, even this past week, I think this is okay to share. Uh, but the, I'm, I, this is just, you know, it's my illustration, but it, it's my life, but it's, it's an illustration, I hope, that maps onto all of our lives in some way. Uh, even this past week, you know, my, my son has a basketball game Friday. Um, and it's like, Friday game, whenever I hear that on the schedule, bad, bad. Why? Because we got youth group. That's his opportunity to get at Jesus. That's his opportunity to like, all right, we're going to intentionally place the yoke on. You're going here. Yeah, you'll have fun. But more importantly, you're going to get at Jesus. You're going to go prospect for gold as you go to youth group. And so like by halftime, it hits 4 o'clock when, when, when youth group is, is like, I could stay here and watch my son. Or I can run over here to help the kids who are able to be here to prospect. 
And it's attention, because I want to be there for my son. Right? That's a good thing. But it's also like, I want the pursuit of Jesus to carry greatest priority in anything. I want my son to say, my dad cares more about helping people prospect than he does about me shooting a three-pointer. Do you catch it? I want him to see in me like Jesus takes priority even over you, buddy. <laughs> even your dreams to be an NBA player, which you won't be, right? You're not going to be an NBA player. You just won't be. But if you pursue Jesus, he'll have far greater plans for you to fulfill. Right? Folks, when it comes to how we do life with family, how we do life with our kids, the question is, is the decision that I'm making in the moment, is it prioritizing Jesus? And is it showing to everyone else that that's where the priority lands. You can't shine for Jesus if you don't. Oh, Jesus can kind of fit into this area of my life, but not priority. <laughs> like, that's, that's taking on the yoke. That's the discipline of saying, nope, Jesus always gets priority. When I was growing up, as soon as we'd start into the basketball season, my dad was walking straight up to that coach, and I would be sitting in the back on beat red because I knew what my dad would say. If you're going to do practices on Wednesday nights, if you're going to do anything on Sundays, my son will not be there. Why? Because we value Jesus over basketball. I hated it in the moment. I despise Dad, why are you doing this? You're taking away my NBA dream. And I'm so glad he did. Because now as a grown-up, I can say, my dad cared for my soul. This just wasn't like a family value. My dad cared for my soul. He knew where true rest could be found. He knew where my eternity could be changed with Jesus. And if everything else gets priority, then what Jesus is is nothing but part of the little cycle that's going to run my life into the ground. Little Jesus, broken life. Big Jesus, Rest for my souls. As it relates to family life, as it relates, I'm just going to throw this out there. I don't want to be a legalist. I hope you understand it. Legalism would say, do all this church stuff because you have to. The true Christian would say, do all this stuff because we got a prospect for gold. We must have rest for our souls in the unrest of our world. It's the reality of it. Go after Jesus with all you got. Learn of him, and you will find rest for yourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you even now, and we are uh, filled with unrest. Oh, how we can even come into these moments, even in singing and... Um, <laughs> And my mind wants to run on other things that are happening this week. And I need to slow down enough so that I can just engage with you. So there can be a love exchange in the three mile an hour walk with you. To just slow down enough to encounter you. Lord, I pray that you begin to woo us. 
that you would just begin to woo us. You're that gentleman <laughs> who just wants to say, hey, come to me, slow it down. Give some time, give some focus, give some attention to me. Lord, how we've run busy. And it's come at the cost of not having the rest that we so desperately need from you. So Jesus, I personally, and as a pastor, just want to repent. Idolatry has gotten in the way. The things out there that we believe are going to bring the satisfaction in here don't. And we've actually worshipped other things, time and attention given away, adulterated out to everything else, rather than seeing you as life and life abundant. And so, Lord, we repent. We want, we want to hear the invitation again. We, we want to be able to say, pushing off all the busy, anxious, fatigued, weary lifestyle that we found ourselves in, and turn to you in childlike faith, just saying, Lord, I don't got it. I've tried finding it in other things. But this afternoon, I'm turning to you, and I'm coming to learn of you. So Jesus, would you prove your gentleness? Would you prove your lowliness, that you're totally ex ex accessible to us, even when we feel like our lives are kind of splintered out and full of that hurry sickness? Prove yourself to us. Lord, I pray for encounters. I pray for encounters. There is, you're waking people up earlier than they care to get up and stirring their hearts with songs and with truth. And they, they, they might be hearing you say, come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me. Lord, don't let us off. Continue to woo us in to your love, slowing us down so that we can capture eyes with you and find you as the one who will give rest for our souls. Grant us rest, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen.